Good evening, everyone, and a very warm welcome to the Brixton Book Jam. <laughs> Thank you all for coming out on this very unsummer-like evening. It's actually a special night tonight because the Brixton Book Jam is celebrating its fifth birthday. <laughs> um, we've got a great lineup for you this evening, including 12 writers who will be reading from a range of literary genres. Also tonight, we're very pleased to welcome musical legend Robert Hackett Jessett from the band Morton Valance, who will be performing for us a little later on. Our first writer this evening, Zelda Riando, is a Dublin writer who has spent most of her life in London. Her first novel, Kappa Scripti, came out in 2012. Zelda then travelled to Japan to research her second novel, F Fukushima Dreams, and is currently working on a third, Good Morning, Mr. Magpie. When not writing, she can be found child wrangling and making digital products. Please welcome to the stage, Zelda Riando. Hello everyone. Oh, that's quite sharp. Um, very pleased to see everyone today. Um, I've got had some very good news recently. I've been um, the book that Jess mentioned, Fukushima Dreams, has been crowdfunding with a publisher called Unbound, and it hit 101% on Monday. So let's go ahead. So I kind of thought I'd be standing up here going, please, everybody, take pity on me. But you can all celebrate how wonderful it is, and obviously pre-order the book. Uh, so Fukushima Dreams, just to give a bit of context, is set in 2011 when a massive tsunami hit the northeast coast of Japan. Um, it's about a couple who, the husband's English, the wife's Japanese, and they move to a little village on the northeast coast where they find out that that the wife, Sachiko, is pregnant. Uh, and when the baby's three, month, three months old, the tsunami hits their village, and Sachiko finds that her husband and her child have gone missing. So I'm just going to read from chapter six. There were a surprising amount of children in the refuge center. Sachiko wondered why she hadn't noticed before how many children there were in Taro. But then she hadn't really ever taken part in the community of the place. Now their cries sounded from behind partitions. They'd nowhere to play. Everyone was afraid of nuclear contamination from the shattered reactors at Fukushima power plant. So there were constantly children underfoot playing complicated games of chase and hide. Sachiko concentrated on trying to remember Tashi it was like he was receding into a haze, and she couldn't quite bring his features to mind. What could she remember about him? He'd just learned to roll over. When she cleaned him, rubbing his smooth skin with almond oil, she found a strange waxy substance in the folds of his skin. Beneath his chin, in the creases at the top of his thighs. He wasn't a chubby baby, it had taken him three months to grow into his newborn clothes. His skin was waxy pale, and his eyes too round for a pure Japanese. You could see the European in him. 
His wispy black hair had a curl to it that echoed Harry's. He had never smiled. When they weren't creased in a face red with screaming, his eyes were a milky blue, like all newborns. Now she would never know what colour they would have been. She'd no photographs of him. She hadn't sent any to her parents when he was born. And why not? What had happened to her relationship with her parents? What broke the filial bond? At some point, her parents and all they had stood for had come to seem monstrous to her. Was it their politics? Of course, they were conservative to the core, but Sachiko had never been political. At university, she'd mostly focused on her studies and ignored the feminists and socialists and anything else with a whiff of the radical. She had met Harry at a party thrown by the English faculty. She'd been in her early 20s, at the end of her course. After that first encounter, they'd met for coffee, gone to see films together, listened to bands and smoky bars. Harry was funny, always mocking, full of sly jokes about the apparent contradictions of Japan. Old-fashioned and narrow-minded, now it seemed that those years had been her loss. She'd become a foreigner in her own country, an alien to the people around her. For the first time, she'd looked at her world, what had seemed normal to her, and was stifled by it. Harry was a breath of fresh air. They'd been to Nijo Castle together to see the palace there, and rather than being overawed by the huge, huge wooden structure, the intricately painted screens that adorned the walls inside, the cunningly constructed nightingale floorboards that were designed to play tunes if anyone tried to sneak along them. Harry spent the time cracking jokes about the paranoia of the builders. They needed the nightingale boards because the walls were so easy to climb, etc. He was particularly scathing about the signs in English, Chinese, and Korean that covered practically every surface. Don't touch the screens. No cameras. Don't walk on the grass. And after a while, even Sachiko, who had grown up with an excess of pedagogical signage, had begun to feel hemmed in by the constant invective. Walk. Don't walk. In fact, she should have pointed out to Harry that all those many signs were to prevent foreigners from damaging the palace. The rules for Japanese people were unwritten. The habit of respect so ingrained it didn't need to be exhorted. At the time, she'd been only too ready to repudiate her own people. But the kindness that she met every day in Taro, being cut suddenly adrift from her whole life, had caused her to reevaluate what she had with Harry. Maybe she should have defended her culture from his systematic attack. Then perhaps he wouldn't have exerted such a strong control over her during the 10 years that they were together. He'd become increasingly bitter as the decade wore on. In retrospect, Sachiko wondered what had kept Harry in Japan for all these years. He'd never suggested that they move back to England together. There was his writing, of course, 
but he'd always been strangely secretive about that. She knew he was working on a book, but not whether it was fact or fiction. He would never let her see his work, and in fact, would become terrifyingly angry if he thought she was prying. The one time he really thought he would hit her, it was when she was about seven months pregnant with Tashi, and they'd been moving into the new place in Tarot. She'd been unpacking one of the boxes marked Harry, writing. She'd idly picked up a notebook positioned at the top of the box and was scanning through it when she became aware that Harry was standing behind her. He'd been breathing heavily. She turned around. The black notebook, the same type he always used, closed, with a finger automatically placed to mark her page. What do you think you're doing? Sachiko had got a terrible fright. She kept her voice level. Unpacking your things, of course. His gaze fell to her hands, the notebook, and his eyes narrowed. He sprang at Sachiko and snatched it from her suddenly nerveless fingers. She'd loved his height, the sheer size of him, but now his dark frame towering over her, the rage in his voice, she felt threatened. Automatically, she crossed her arms over her belly, subconsciously protecting the baby inside. How dare you nose through my private notebooks? You know I hate you reading that stuff. It's not ready yet. I'm, I'm sorry. I was just curious. You never let me see your work. You wouldn't understand it. There was a time that you liked reading to me. Harry wouldn't meet her eye. His attention on the notebook. He shoulder-barged Sachiko and snatched it from her shaking hands. He shoved the notebook in on top of all the others and firmly closed the lid of the box, hefting its weight like it was a feather in the heat of his anger. It's private. Here's a tip for you. Any boxes with my name on them can stay packed until I'm good and ready to get to them. And you're to keep your nose out, all right? His chin thrust out, challenging her. But Sachiko didn't have the energy to pick up this particular gauntlet. She bowed her head obediently and left the apartment with a muttered excuse about greens for dinner. She couldn't remember when he'd got so strange and secretive. It was part of everything that had gone wrong. Thanks, Elder. The only child of two writers, Merlin Sinclair grew up in a world that revolved around literature. Breaking the family tradition, he rebelled and joined the corporate world, where he worked as a copywriter and a marketer. However, unable to escape the inevitable, he has now completed his debut, a historical novel inspired by a trip to the Prado in Madrid. Please welcome to the stage Merlin Sinclair. Can everyone hear me? Can everyone, yes, yes. 
Can everyone hear me? Sorry. Can everyone hear me? Yes. Sebastian Mora was born in Camoche, a, vi a village in the hinterlands of Normandy. Forty miles from Caen, it lay on an outcrop facing 5,000 miles of open Atlantic, clinging to its spur like some barnacle to a whale. It was the ocean that brought the whiting, the bass, the mackerel, the bream, and the crab. But it was also the ocean that brought the wind, a hard easterly that stung the eyes, that blew away the earth and left only sand and rock behind, that brought clouds and driving rain from September to June, an incessant wetness which made its way through every wall, roof, and into the damp logs which sputtered in every fireplace. Dark and unrelenting months as the air tugged and squalled, wearing the people down as they protected their soil behind low walls, binding it as best they could with beans, beetroot, and turnip, or else braved the water with its currents and riptides, moods that answered only to the sun and the earth. The only release came with summer, both a blessing and a curse, a momentary respite from the scrabble and the toil, a few weeks to dance, drink, and forget, but always too brief and always with the same bitter ending, when the wind returned and the sodden cycle began all over again. The village was a quarter of a mile from the shore, a straggle of no more than 60 dwellings, all in varying states of disrepair. Sebastian's was no exception. Like its neighbors, it was walled with mud and stone. Timber was avoided the fishermen knowing all too well how their boats suffered in the salt and the breeze. But while rock could resist the elements, whatever the mortar, the wind would pick it out, leaving the loose stones to crumble, particularly high up near the thatch. And no matter how much his parents tried to repair the seaward side, they could never seal all the cracks or keep out the chill which followed every setting sun. The inside was divided into two, one room for his parents, the other, larger, was used for everything else, a place to eat as well as a bedroom for him and his brothers at night. It was dark, the only light came in through the open chimney and a door on the landward side, and Sebastian was to remember it more as a burrow than a home, a life of shadow, all of them packed together like a litter of newborns. Evenings spent crouched tight round the fire with its familial stench of smoke and sweat that made its way into their clothes, skin and nose until everything they drunk or taste was overpowered by it. Both his mother and father shared the local physiognomy, flat faces that had been ground to the nub, though it was there the similarity ended. His father was black-eyed, sullen, and lean, dressed in his dark tunic, either away at sea or staring into the fire with a drink in his hand. She was the opposite, blue-eyed, always around and busying herself in her dress and shawl, nudging and cajoling, a whirl of good humor and chat. They squabbled incessantly, but seemed to fit each other's absences well enough. 
she found comfort in his silence, while he found sanctuary in her warmth. And each seemed content in their role, she taking care of the children, he fetching the water and catching the fish. Sebastian was their first child, and as such, his birth was celebrated. However, by the age of three, it was obvious something was wrong. While his age was, while his chest was normal enough, his back, limbs, and jaw remained of infantile proportions, the skull outlandish on his tiny body. Consequently, many of his earliest memories were of distorted faces, the expressions of horrified relatives, visitors flinching as they caught his eye, the stares of unfamiliar children peering round doorways. Revolted, his father avoided him whenever possible. Instead, the boy took sanctuary in his mother's company. Pitying him, she swaddled him close, at first within the confines of the crib, and then, when age five, he was able to escape it. She still kept him close to her skirts, safe from his two younger brothers, Charles and Audrian, who rampaged through the gloom, a pair of clumsy giants oblivious to his presence. And there he remained for his earliest years, secure in his orbit, a speck in infinite space, yet safely revolving around a single star. Thank you. Thank you, Merlin. Um, Paula Lennon is the sixth and last child in a family of boys born to Jamaican parents in the West Midlands. Paula currently lives in Jamaica, where she's always actively plotting, writing, and being distracted by the Caribbean Sea. Her debut novel, Murder in Montego Bay, will be released this Friday the 9th of June by London publisher Jacaranda Books. Please welcome to the stage Paula Lennon. So this is my debut. Um, it's actually about a Jamaican detective who is helped or hindered by a Glaswegian detective um, solving a murder in Montego Bay. I'm going to read um, from chapter one, which seems logical to me. Uh, I'll give you about three and a half pages. Detective Wraith and Freddy wanted a hot cup of ganja tea, a large one. Sleep had eluded him last night, and now he was driving along the deserted roads of Montego Bay with no time for his usual therapeutic brew. His body was missing the vital energy that came with rest, just when he needed to be at his productive best. Relaxation would need to wait until the unwanted spike in crime, as once described by the police commissioner, had retracted. Twenty minutes earlier, an incoming phone call had all but confirmed that the crime was in no mood to retreat just yet. Carter Chin Ellis, heir to the Jamaican Chinchillas Empire, had been found dead. The distance between Freddy's Ironshore apartment and the Red Hills district was less than 10 miles of pretty good road with not a pothole in sight. To the untrained eye, everything on the route appeared to be perfectly in order, yet it was not. The city of Montego Bay was a tale of two extremes with a delicate balance in the middle. On the tourist side was the Caribbean Sea, an unending blanket of shimmering silver 
which turned many shades of blue as soon as the sun came up in a cloudless sky. Palm trees everywhere with their fronds splayed like giant feathers covering their trunks and endless miles of white sand. That was the magnificent side espoused by the glossy brochures enticing visitors to the parish of St. James. Then there was the flip side, an unhealthy dose of guns, drugs, and scamming. That side rarely reached the visitors to the rock, who, whose adequately guarded hotels shielded them from anything that did not match the Jamaica Tourist Board's output. The ugliness remained blotted out by the dazzling sun, the crunch of warm sand, and the blare of reggae music. The locals saw it, though. Those people unwilling or unable to leave their unstable communities lived it on a daily basis. The gangs in particular focused on the outer unfashionable districts where unemployment was an occupation and there was no such thing as social security save that provided by the gang leaders. Freddie was thankful a middle ground existed. Most residents would only ever read about crime or watch reports on the news without directly being caught up in it. In the daytime there was no discernible change in people's behavior. They worked, shopped, swam, strolled in the park and otherwise led completely normal existences. At night they went to bars, movies, parties and wherever their social lives took them. Once home, they affixed solid padlocks to iron grills, caging all possible entrance points, and those who could afford it enabled their electronic security systems. Freddie reached for the radio control knob. As to be expected on a Sunday morning, the voice of a ranting preacher filled the airspace, predicting that the wicked would burn in hell and God would withhold his blessings from blasphemers. A tabby cat decided to use up one of its many lives and ran out in front of Freddy's vehicle, startling the detective. I would harass, he muttered, as he swerved to avoid it and then immediately apologized to God. Too late. There would be no blessings on him this morning, and he was really going to need help, whether it was to come from on high or on the ground. The detective had worked for the Jamaican Constabulary Force for over 18 years. It was tough, yet even at its hardest stage, he had never regretted his choice of career. A failed raid had set his superior's nerves on edge and tested his resolve for a while, though. He licked the bar from his lips as the visions of shot screams and dead bodies that occupied his nights flashed through his mind yet again. Pelican Walk was not a large police station compared to some of the others in Montego Bay, but it benefited from high-caliber detectives, sergeants, and constables, some of whom had up to 12 years of service. The detectives were members of the Major Crimes Task Force, which formed a primary part of the Area 1 Geographic Division, covering the western parishes of Westmoreland, Hanover, Trelawney, and Trelawney, as well as St. James. Its remit was to reduce major crimes, particularly murders, in the region. Freddie glanced at the dashboard clock. The two female detectives he had called earlier would now be making their way to Red Hills. He had hesitated before placing a third phone call, there was a new temporary addition to Pelican Walk, a police officer on secondment from Glasgow, Scotland, Detective Sean Harris, a red-headed white male approaching 50 with nearly two decades in law enforcement. For the past two weeks, the foreigner had cut his teeth on the Jamaican style of policing and spent a great deal of time reviewing evidence of violent crimes with other officers. Freddie was reserving judgment on Harris. Although Freddie was always open to a fresh take on things, he was not entirely comfortable with this green-eyed outsider, but the superintendent had indicated that Harris must be given high-level work to do, 
and chances were it would not get much higher than this. Oh, sorry, there are copies for sale at the back. Thank you, Paula, and thanks for coming such a long way. It's exciting to have an international writer at the Brixton Book Jam. Our next writer, Leela Segal, was born in London. Her debut short story collection, Breathe, Stories from Cuba, originated during the time she lived in Havana and in Cuba's Pina del Rio province. Leela is director of Voice of Freedom, which is a project enabling formerly trafficked women who have escaped their captors to use text and photography to raise awareness of their experiences. Please welcome to the stage Leela Segal. everyone. Um, I wrote my short story collection, Breathe, while I lived in Cuba over a six-year period, and um, I had a Cuban partner. Uh, the stories, I, was, I became very interested in the problematic nature of relationships between Cubans and uh, visitors to the island. So all of these stories explore those kind of relationships from one perspective or another. I'm going to read you two short extracts to give you a flavor of the voices in the book. So the first extract is from a story called Sabbatical in which Carol, a teacher from England, is traveling Latin America. And Cuba is her dream, but unfortunately, things aren't turning out quite as she expected. Carol was pleased to discover that Raoul spoke almost perfect English. He told her that he used to be an engineer, but at 29 got fed up with working for the state wage of $18 a month and gave it up to conduct a little business of his own. Now he lived from an illegal internet connection rigged up to Telma's phone, sending emails for 50 cents apiece. He took Carol out to the back and showed her the line he'd strung from his apartment to Telma's connecting his computer to her phone. Cubans weren't allowed the internet at home. They were interrupted by Telma. Fidel, 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 she mouthed contemptuously, waving one wrinkled arm at the television, her face twisted with anger. The president was giving his nightly speech Raoul moved smartly over to the set and switched it to the other channel where some children in leotards were dancing to a disco tune. He laughed sheepishly at Carol. You can see we're not supporters of the revolution in this house, he said. Telma cried the day it began. He laughed again and moved back to where they had been sitting at the table as if nothing had happened. Carol wanted to ask why they didn't support the revolution. She'd read that Cuba had a higher literacy rate than anywhere in Latin America and free health care for all, that the revolution had done away with the terrible inequality between the working classes and the bourgeoisie. But before she could say anything, Telma spoke again. He has robbed us. This country ruined. 
her voice quavered. Before he came, we were rich. Now we have nothing. We are nothing. Poor, we live like rats. She gestured around the room, which was, by Western standards, humbly furnished. But that was part of its charm. It wasn't dirty, and the walls were nicely painted, much better than some of the wrecks Carol had seen along the street. That man has stolen our lives. If I were younger, I'd leave on one of the boats, like your mother did, Thelma said. And now he's taking you, my Raoul, the only thing I have left. Shh, Grandma, shh, I'm not going yet. He put an arm round her shoulders. Carol remained at the table, fiddling with her cup of coffee. After a moment, Raoul looked over to Carol and smiled. Don't worry, Thelma can get a little upset. She knows that I want to leave, but soon she forgets. To Thelma, he said, now come on, let's sit down together and speak of happy things. <clears throat> and the other extract that I'm going to read is from a story called The Party in which a Cuban man, Charo, takes his foreign girlfriend, Anna, to meet his family for the first time. And, and the narrator in the story is Anna. Out in the salon, the women were holding little Frankie, his eyes round and unsmiling, waving his arms for him in time to the music. Baila, baila, they chanted. He looked bewildered clutched onto the side of a chair, and when no one was watching anymore, waggled his bottom in time to the beat. I danced with Ramon on the balcony. Much smaller, Ramon made me stoop to meet his rhythm, and the guests crowded round, fascinated like spectators at a dog fight. Ivan was gesturing at Jorge. They laughed and shouted to each other, she knows how to dance. They stood around us in a ring. Ivan's eyes seemed to bulge larger and larger in his small head until I thought they might burst from their sockets. Mira, como le gusta mover el culo, he cried, slapping his thigh. Then it was Mirna with Ramon. She moved vaguely in yellow shorts. I stood to one side. A smile turned the corners of her mouth, but it was not at Ramon that she threw her gaze. Here he is, said Barbara. The other half of your, how you say, the other piece of your orange? Charo caught my wrist and we danced. At first, he held me tentatively as if I might break or as if I was really strong and might hurt him. I focused hard on my feet. One, two, three. One, two, three. On the steps he taught. Amor, look at me. He lifted my face to his, cradled me, swung me round till my feet, which knew the steps, no longer knew but moved of their own accord, turned me with the slightest pressure, the flick of a wrist. That's it. He held me tight as if there'd been no time in between, and we kissed. There were no words that needed to be said that might not be said 
no painful silences. It was just us in the heartbeat of the dance. The old woman was leaning against the counter, staring at us with a peculiar look in her eyes, almost as if she was angry, remembering a time when she would have been the one dancing, thinking of romance long gone and she alone left to cook in a dirty kitchen. I saw my mother, youth etched beneath her sagging face. I saw the future with her not there. What will happen when I'm old? I whispered to Charo. Come to Cuba. Will you look after me? Of course. His breath was sweet with rum. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much, Leela. <clears throat> and now to our musical interlude. Robert Hacker Jessett writes Urban Country, which is a genre that could loosely be defined as a lyrical blend of rock, electro, folk, and alt-country. He has recorded six studio albums with his band Morton Valens, of which one, Bob and Veronica Ride Again, was accompanied by a 110-page novella of the same name, and another, Europa, was recorded in seven different languages. Please welcome to the Brixton Book Jam stage, Robert Hacker Jessett. Um, yeah, thank you for having me this evening. Thank you, Zelda and everybody. Um, I'm just going to play a couple of songs. Um, this is called Black Eyed Susan. There is no end to the week. 
have seen the dance of barflies up against the Glasgow sunrise and exhausted on the ground the lovers lose on Sunday just to hear some sweaty priest you can't count on his devotion at the bottom of emotion no matter what you've done so go on, lie on beaches in the sun. Black-eyed Susan was my daughter. Thanks very much indeed. Um, at this point, I'm going to bring things down a little bit, I think. I said that last time. Um, what should I do? Okay. I'm innocent. I 
some education They've got the wrong kind of bars in here I talk about my friends and my association It won't be long till this time next year Ask me, what am I in for? Well, I'm innocent. I get it all, say that. You know, and you ask me, what am I in for? Well, I'm innocent. I get it all, say that. You know, and you ask me, what am I in for? Well, I'm innocent. for Zelda. As an east wind blows through the south side of town, an old car pulls up and the sun goes down, get in the back and on the radio Take a left down Paradise Road And we'll drive around Into a brand new day It makes no difference To me and home, Jane Catches your eye like a glittering star. She jumps in the back of a big black car and the raindrops. Watch the night away. It's the same old story. Once again, get into the back and out of the pouring rain. And we'll drive around. Into a brand new 
Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much, Robert. We're thrilled you could be here this evening for the Book Jam's fifth birthday party. Uh, we're now going to have a very short interval of five to seven minutes 